Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3, this morning we're looking at verses 1 through 15. This is God's holy, inerrant, and powerful word. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. When you think of the five major sports in our culture, football, baseball, basketball, hockey, and soccer, all but one of them has the clock as a very important factor in playing the game. All but one. People ask me why I keep saying baseball is God's favorite sport. What better sport to play through all eternity is a, than a game that does not have a clock, the only major sport that does not have a clock. But... We are people who are captive to time, and so therefore the time element in our sports does add a very fascinating aspect to the strategy of playing the game. Controlling the clock or managing the clock is a very important responsibility among those who lead in those four sports that we're talking about. The quarterback in football, the point guard in basketball, the coach or manager in any of those sports needs to know how to manage the clock well, to control the clock. It's an important way of controlling the game. 
It affects the types of plays that you call. It affects how you use your timeouts. In basketball, it determines whether you choose to foul or not to foul. In football, it determines whether you want to stay in bounds or go out of bounds. These are just some of many ways that the leaders on the team try to control the clock. And it is often the difference between winning and losing. Don't you wish that you had the ability to control the clock in your life? Don't you wish that you could stop and start the clock, depending on your circumstances, so that you could control your life better? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to hit the pause button right before you lose your temper when you're in a fight with your spouse or your kids? Wouldn't it be nice to hit the pause button just before you have to take that test that you haven't studied for adequately? Wouldn't it be nice to hit the pause button on the last day of your vacation as you're sitting on the beach, sipping lemonade, looking at the waves? In another sense, wouldn't it be nice to be able to hit fast-forward sometimes, like when you're at the door of the dentist's office? Or to hit rewind, like in those moments when you drop your cell phone in the swimming pool? It'd be really nice to control the clock, wouldn't it? Well, that's the reality that the writer of Ecclesiastes deals with here in this very familiar passage at the beginning of chapter 3. Undoubtedly, this is the one passage, if you didn't know any other passage from Ecclesiastes, I'm sure you've heard this one or maybe know this one well. Matter of fact, back in the 1960s, the birds had a big hit called Turn, 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 which is almost a word-for-word quote of the poem, the first eight verses here in chapter 3. But actually, as you think about that hit, Turn, 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 I was fascinated by that this week, never really noticed, but... Pete Seeger, the birds actually didn't write the song. Pete Seeger, the, the folk singer, I've just died recently. He's the one who actually wrote the song. Well, God wrote most of the song. but He actually added just one little phrase to the song. It's at the very end. The very last phrase, he takes it from, from verse 8. He says, a time for war and a time for peace. And then Mr. Seeger adds this little phrase, I swear it's not too late. The reason he added that is because he intended this. He didn't care anything for scripture. What he intended for this song to do is to be a protest song. It was written during the Vietnam War. And he saw it as a way to appeal to the populace to come together, cooperate, work hard, and end this war and bring peace. And by adding that little phrase at the end to encourage us to go after it and make it happen, he actually turned the whole song, the whole poem, right up on, upside down on its head because that's the exact opposite point that the writer of Ecclesiastes is making as he writes these words. The point of this poem is not how we can control our life. It's about how out of control of our life we really are. We have an illusion of control. We think we control our lives. We try every day hard to control our lives. But actually, forces beyond our control ultimately drive our lives. What's behind those forces, those greater forces? Who's behind them? And for what reason? What purpose? Why? 
one of the biggest questions you can answer in your life. We've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and we said that the writer very well may have been King Solomon. If it wasn't King Solomon, it was some other great and prosperous king in Israel. But we've been clear to point out that for most of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is not writing from his fully enlightened perspective. He's actually writing in character of the one that is translated here, the preacher, the teacher, the one I'm calling Professor Q, because in Hebrew, the name is Koheleth. Koheleth. I still can't say it. Koheleth. And so that's why I call him Professor Q. But, you know, this Q is this almost a literary figure who wants to find meaning and purpose in the world in his life, but he has confined, he's put a self-imposed limitation on saying, I'm only going to look under the sun. I'm only going to look at what I can see, taste, touch, feel with my senses to find out meaning and purpose in life. And we've seen in recent weeks how he applied all of his resources, his power, his authority, his time, his energy to find meaning to life in all these different areas. He looked in the field of wisdom and knowledge and came up empty. He looked in the, in the, the pursuit of pleasure and wealth and material things and he came up empty. And then he gave himself over to hard work and accomplishments. And at the end of every search, he came to the same conclusion, the same answer, the same bottom line. All is meaningless. Vanity of vanities. It's all soap bubbles. Pretty for a moment, then pop and it's gone. Well, here in this passage, he makes some more, some more general observations. And what he focuses on here is the rhythm to life. That there's a sense of orderliness. When he looks around, not just at the created world, and certainly all of us see order that points to a designer in the created world, but he's actually here looking at human activities. He's looking at history. And as he looks at the history of human activities, he says there's a sense of order there. There does seem to be some purpose. There seems even to be some kind of a hidden hand behind everything that happens. You know, the unbelieving world has always debated this. What, are, what kind of forces determine where we end up in life? Is it fate or is it chance? Is it destiny or is it free will? Well, Q's answer is in verse 1. He says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That's a profound philosophical statement there. He is saying that there is a proper, appropriate time for everything that is done under heaven. That there is some objective force, power, person, that determines what's the right thing to do at any given time. The book of Ecclesiastes is included in part of scripture that's called the wisdom literature. And when you look at the other portions of wisdom literature in the Bible, you look at the Psalms, you look at Proverbs, so much of it is, you know, when you pursue wisdom, wisdom is not, we've talked about this before, it's not just knowing the facts, it's not just knowing what's true, but wisdom is being able to apply what you know to be true to the circumstances that you're in. 
And so that's where time comes into the picture. How do you apply what you know to be true at the right time? And what you see is he moves into this poem is that you can do one thing at one time and then do something totally contradictory at another time and both of them be right. Not because of situational ethics, but because wisdom would say, do this in this situation, but do the opposite in another situation, in another time. And so this poem is made up of 14 pairs of opposite actions and emotions. He contrasts being born and dying, planting and uprooting, tearing down and building up, weeping and laughing. Which one is appropriate? Which one should you do? Well, it depends. It depends on your time. It depends on your circumstances. And so he goes through this list, which really, as you look at it, he covers such a wide variety of human activity at any given point in history. All these human activities illustrate for him that timing is everything. If you want to plant, do it in the spring. Don't do it in November. If you want to uproot, don't do that in April or May. Do that in the fall. If you mourn at a wedding, it's inappropriate. If you laugh at a funeral, it's inappropriate. Look at verse 7. This is kind of an interesting example. It contrasts tearing and sowing and keeping silent and speaking. And what's interesting is, is that these 14 pairs, they're actually put together in two pairs each to cover one kind of general area of life, if you see that pattern developing as you, as you read through it. And so you come to verse 7 and you say, how do these things fit together? Tearing and sowing and keeping silent and speaking. And kind of an ingenious interpretation, I'm not sure it's right, but it makes sense to me that they're actually talking about the grieving process. Because in Jewish culture, when a loved one dies, you go through it in a time of great grief or a time of deep repentance, what do you do? You rend your garments. You tear your clothing as a sign of grief. And so then the, the point here is if, if you're in a period of grief, is it time to rend your garments or is it time to sew those garments back together and move on with your life? Or if someone you know is grieving, is it a time to speak to them, to give them comfort or to challenge them? Or is it a time just to be silent and to be there for them? You can see how this applies. And so again... What's the right thing to do? What's the right emotional response to the situation? Well, it depends on the time and circumstances. The point of the whole poem, then, is that the times of our lives are what ultimately direct our path, determine our emotional responses, our feelings, and determine the actions that we choose. And we don't control the times of our lives. That's what the poem is trying to tell us. We don't control the times of our lives. They control us. So when you move to verses 9 through 15, you have the poem that just observes that. That's just his wise observation on life. But then you move to verses 9 through 15, and you get Q's commentary on that. What does he think about that? How does that affect him? And he says in verse 10, He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
That's, again, a very important philosophical statement. God is the one who controls the times of our lives. God has given us the times and circumstances that we are to respond to in life. We've seen before, even though Q will only look at things under the sun and will only deal with data that he can process with his five senses, he's not an atheist. He does believe in God. He believes in a creator. And what we see here is that he also believes in the doctrine of providence. He believes that God has planned things. God has arranged things. The orderliness that we sense to history as well as creation is from the very hand of God. The orderliness that we see in the times and circumstances of life isn't due to impersonal fate, but to a very personal creator. And he goes on in verse 11 to say, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now that sounds like a very pleasant, positive thought. But he's actually, and I think it would help if it was translated, he makes everything appropriate in its time. Because that's, an, that's, a, that's a, a good interpreta- or good translation of the Hebrew word as well. He makes everything good and appropriate in its time. He's just making this point. The question we've been asking back in the poem is, what's that force behind human activity that really controls our lives he's saying God makes everything appropriate which one is right which one is wrong in any given time and circumstance God is the one who makes it right he's the one who sets the standard his will is perfect that's what he's saying he is the one who determines whether it's appropriate to plant or uproot to build or to destroy or to embrace or not to embrace and so he underlines it, emphasizes it in verse 14. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. That is a very strong statement of the sovereignty of God. Not only is God the God of providence, but he is a sovereign God. He does as he pleases. No one can add to his perfect plan or his perfect will, and no one can take away from it. God is absolutely sovereign. But the interesting thing is that Q doesn't rejoice in that. He doesn't. He finds it frustrating. We see that at the end of verse 11. Because having said this, he goes on to say, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God is that force that overrules all the times and circumstances of our lives. He's that hand behind everything. But Q, because he's only looking under the sun, he says, I can't figure it out. What's he doing? What's his plan? What's his purpose? And the reason that's so frustrating to Q, and the same reason it's frustrating to you and me, is because we have eternity in our hearts. God has put it in us. Because we're made in the image of God. I just had a bug land on my glasses. (laughs) Providentially. God has put eternity in our hearts. Eternity is wired into us. It's part of our DNA. Because we're made in the image of God. So we're not like the animals. We cannot be satisfied to eat and drink and work and survive under the sun. We can't be, we can't be satisfied because we're made in the image of God. We've got this sense of eternity. That's why we keep asking, why, God? 
For what purpose? What's the plan? And so when you read verse 13, again, it sounds positive, just like it would a chapter or so earlier. It sounds positive. He said the same thing earlier. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That's not a, a joyful statement on the part of Q here. It's a statement of resignation. It's saying, I long for meaning and purpose. I want to know the plan for all of my activity, let alone human history, but I can't figure it out. I don't know what it is. None of it makes sense to me. So I guess the best I can hope for is to eat some good food, drink some good drink, and get the most satisfaction I can out of the work that I do day in and day out. It's a statement of resignation. And that doesn't change the bottom line for Q. All is vanity chasing after the wind. It's still going to be the same bottom line. Another old song that reveals my age, Paul Simon had a big hit a number of years ago called Slip Sliding Away. I don't know if you ever paid attention to the words of that song. I never did until this week, actually. When I looked up the lyrics, it's amazing. It's almost a paraphrase of Ecclesiastes. Listen to this part of the song. This is what Simon writes. He says, God only knows. God makes his plan. The information's unavailable to the mortal man. We work our jobs, collect our pay, believing we're gliding on down the highway when, in fact, we're slip-sliding away. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Because we don't know the plan of God. You see where I'm going with this. Sounds really depressing. I always say, about two-thirds away in the sermon, I have to say this, every, every message I do in Ecclesiastes, about two-thirds away in, let's go out and shoot ourselves. I mean, why, why, are we, why are we even here? But I know you're still here because you know there's more to the story. Because Q is only looking under the sun. But there is truth that comes from above the sun. We can know God's plan and purpose. It's been revealed to us. We can, using the words of Q himself, we can find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Hebrews chapter 1 begins, the the whole book of Hebrews begins by saying, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Revelation has come from above the sun so that we can know the plan and purpose of our creator. And that makes all the difference. Q says that God's sovereign will is so perfect and so so absolute that nothing can be added to it or taken away from it, and that is true. But there's one other thing in all of creation that that same description is given to, something that can't be added to or taken away from. According to the scriptures, it's the word of God itself. God is sovereign, and God has spoken. He doesn't reveal everything to us. I know you're like me. I want a lot more detailed information about my times and circumstances. I want to know more about God's plan and his purpose in any given day. But what the scriptures tell us is that he has spoken and he's told us everything that we need to know for life and godliness until Christ comes again. 
Everything we need to know, it's there in this book. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. It is only by God's word, given through the prophets and the apostles, that we can know what is appropriate for the times and circumstances of our lives. That we might keep his will, his word. Whether to live or die, whether to plant or uproot, whether to build or destroy, whether to keep or to lose, whether to dance or to mourn, how do we know? God has spoken. The Supreme Court made a decision on marriage this week. Most of the people around us seem to be celebrating it. Some of us are mourning it. What should we be doing? What's the right response to our time and our circumstances? God has spoken. His word has made his will clear. You can't know it if you only look under the sun. Well, you'll see some indicators of his will on that subject under the sun, but you ultimately can't know for sure under the sun. But God has spoken. And his word is perfect. But I'm here to tell you this morning that the importance of God speaking from heaven to give us his plan and purpose goes far beyond who we should marry or how we should marry or whether we should plant or whether we should uproot or whether we should keep or whether we should lose or whether we should mourn or whether we should rejoice. It goes far beyond that. Because his final word came through his son. Because Hebrews 1 goes on to say that even though God in the past spoke by his prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Providence has a name. And that name is Jesus Christ. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And because God has spoken, and because Jesus Christ has come to make all things clear, we know the plan and purpose behind all of history. It's called the covenant of grace. That we have sinned and alienated ourselves from our holy God, and we are deserving of eternal punishment, but God at the right time in the right place sent his Son to live a perfect life in our midst. And then to offer himself up on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for all our sins so that we might not only be forgiven, but that we might be born again to a new life, be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to become like Christ, eternally adopted into the family of God. And the eternity in our hearts is finally satisfied because we know the plan and purpose of God And we've experienced it because of what Christ has done in our lives. You know, Q says very strongly, our times are in his hand. With his under-the-sun perspective, he says it very strongly. All of our times are in his hands. He's absolutely sovereign, but he finds no comfort in that. But David knows the covenant of grace. David knows the plan of redemption. David knows that God the Father had promised a Redeemer and he held on to that promise that he might one day be forgiven for his great sin. 
and be a part of God's eternal kingdom. And so when he wrote Psalm 31, this is what David said, verse 5, I trust in you, O Lord. I say to you, you are my God. My times are in your hand. David takes comfort in the fact that his times are in the hand of an absolutely sovereign God because his sins are forgiven and he's adopted by grace. It's a comfort. In The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the trilogy written by J.R.R. Tolkien, Gandalf the wizard takes some time to tell Frodo about this ring of power, what its origins are, what its dastardly effect has been, and how it has come down into his hands and how that ring needed to be destroyed. Do you remember how Frodo responded to Gandalf's account? Frodo said what you and I would say. He said, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf replies by saying, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. God is absolutely sovereign. And your times are in his hand. And he has revealed to you his plan and his purpose through Jesus Christ. And we've read the last page. We know how this story comes out. Christ reigning over an eternal and perfect kingdom with you and I made perfect, enjoying his glory forever. But now, these are difficult times for us to live in and to serve in. But it's a time for courage and excitement, not fear. Many of you, I know, have read a well-republished uh, article written by Russell Moore over the last couple of days. Let me just quote one part of that column he wrote. He says, In light of the Supreme Court's recent decision, some Christians will be tempted to anger lashing out at the world around us with a narrative of decline. That temptation is wrong. God decided when we would be born and when we would be born again. We have the spirit and the gospel. To think that we deserve to live in different times is to tell God that we deserve a better mission field than the one that he's given to us. Our times are in his hands. Our times are in his nail-scarred hands. The nail-scarred hands of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We know the plan and the purpose behind all of our times, all our circumstances. And we know that the plan and the purpose is so good. We don't need to control the clock because we trust the one who is in control of the clock. Matter of fact, keep that clock out of my hands. I'll screw it up really bad. His times are perfect. His plan is perfect. My friend Stan Gale wrote a book on Ecclesiastes. Let me quote just a couple of sentences. He says, worry wants control. It wants knowledge of what will happen. It wants power over the what-ifs. 
We don't want to relinquish control because we want our will to be done. Jesus taught us to pray as he prayed, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, I trust in you, Lord, and my times are in your hands. I was reflecting on current events as I was having my devotional time yesterday morning, reading the Bible and praying, and I was sitting on my sun porch. And I've told you before, you know, that I sit there, I watch the birds. I have a feeder right outside my window, so just a few feet away. I love the variety of birds that come. It helps me to really just praise God for, for his provision, his creation. And I was reading, and I started reading Matthew 8 and 9. That was my assigned reading for yesterday morning. And as I read those two chapters, I read about Jesus healing a leper. I read about him healing a paralyzed man, a bleeding woman, two blind men, and a man who could not speak. And I read about him standing up in the middle of a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee and speaking to that storm and stopping it in an instant. And I read about him raising a little girl from the dead. And I got to the end of chapter 8, and I said, My times are in your hand, O Lord. Your plan is good. It is perfect. And then the Lord gave me a little gift. And this is kind of silly, so I'm a little embarrassed to share it. But to me, it was powerful. At that moment, as I'm watching all the birds, and over the last few days, there's been an unusual amount of birds gathering at my feeders. I've been having trouble keeping up with keeping the food in the feeder. And I was marveling at all the different varieties that God had made and praising him for that. And it suddenly dawned on me that I hadn't seen a chickadee for weeks and weeks, which is really weird because in my life, I've watched birds all my life. That was always probably one of the most common birds I ever saw, and here as well as elsewhere I've lived. And it's one of my absolute favorites. I love chickadees. And so I thought, I haven't seen one for weeks. And I was puzzling about why, and I was sad literally sad in that moment. And as that thought went through my mind, you know, that really makes me sad. I miss them. A chickadee flew up and landed on my bird feeder just three feet away from my face. And I said, God, you did that, didn't you? You may call that a coincidence, but that's the way God works. Just a tiny little reminder that he knows what I'm thinking when I pray. He knows the words before they're on my tongue. And he has a plan and a purpose for my life. And he's totally in control of everything, even whether a chickadee lands on my feet or not, just to encourage me a little bit that morning. And I was reminded of what Jesus says over in chapter 9. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus said in John 14, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, and our times are in his hands. Let's pray. Father, we have philosophical arguments about whether you're absolutely, totally sovereign in life or not, and that's so silly. Your word makes it clear. And this morning, as we reflect upon your word, we're so deeply thankful that you are sovereign in all the details of our lives and that all things work together for good for those who love you 
and are called according to your eternal purpose. The purpose of redemption through Christ our Lord. The purpose of his kingdom, which will endure forever. Thank you for making us a part of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.